Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we're heading into part two of our Mere Christianity series. If you're not familiar with what Mere Christianity is, it's a book by C.S. Lewis, perhaps one of the most influential and popular theological books of all time. And Grant, who is a dentist, is going to cover book one and also the introduction of Mere Christianity tonight. We're going to be looking at morality and how that perhaps uh, gives a, a clue into the existence of God and the universe, and a whole lot of other things, primary, secondary, tertiary doctrine, and a lot of other good stuff. So I hope you're having a good week. I'm very excited to hear Grant. He's only with us uh, occasionally, and so we're really lucky to have him with us tonight. So without further ado, here's Grant Dasher. All right. So um, I'm going to try to do this quick. Last time I spoke, it lasted a long time, and I think I have more pages this time. And I, I basically do word for word, so so this is probably I'm gonna really I'm just gonna speak faster. Um, all right, waste no time. Um, I just I want to start with a quote by C.S. Lewis. You can never go wrong with a with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Um, he said, "Ever since I became a Christian, I've thought that that the best, perhaps the only, service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief." That has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. So, and Kyle, are you gonna are you gonna start uh, yeah, I'll, stop I'll, us here? Okay. Um, so, at the heart of mere Christianity is this desire we, we see in this quote by C.S. Lewis to perform Christian service, and I believe that is our first blank. Is that right? Yeah, that's our first blank. So we think about service in a lot of different ways, um, especially in 2017. There's kind of this idea of what it means to serve, um, service projects. Um, but Lewis makes the point that the best and maybe even the only service that he could provide was simply to tell the truth about what we believe as Christians. This is his service project. That's what he says. Explaining and defending Christianity. So Lewis, he writes Mere Christianity, which is a book that, that contains just the basic tenets of our faith, and he's writing it to people who don't believe. Um, now, I think it's beneficial. It, it was beneficial for me to read it, even as a believer, because it strengthened my faith. Um, but the book was written and intended for people who, who don't believe, um, maybe people who you would refer to as seekers. And many would argue that it's had an impact on um, people who believe, but are maybe struggling as well. So Lewis refers to this book as an invitation to a great hall from which there are many doors. So he says that the hall is a place where you go and, and you wait until you find the door that you must enter. So in other words, he, he's inviting through his book his unbelieving neighbors. This is spelled with a U because he's British, right? Um, he, he's inviting his unbelieving neighbors into this great hall where they go and they wait. So if you've seen like Lord of the Rings and you think about like these huge halls that are like got these gigantic pillars and then exiting from this giant hall, there would be doors, you know, surrounding the hall. Um, and he's inviting his neighbors into this hall where they wait. Uh, and, eventually, and eventually they go into a door, or they enter a door into a church or a denomination that falls within our faith, within the faith of Christianity. So um, there's uh, weight is the, the next blank here. 
the the hall is a place to wait. So he says that above all, and I think this is huge, he says above all you must be asking which door is the true one. And that's uh, our next blank. Which door is the true one? Not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, he says, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? He goes on to say, when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. So his point is this. Search for a church or a denomination that is true and, and good. And when you found that church, remember that there are other rooms in the home, right? Like your room isn't the only room in the home. And though, the, though those rooms may have different names, they are still all under the same roof. That's the point that he's making. So then the question becomes, I think very simply, who lives in the home? That's, that's the question, right? And that's maybe where there's been a lot of debate. But who lives in this home? What does it mean to call yourself a Christian? Um, so to, in full disclosure, I kind of hate the word progressive because it carries with it a, a connotation, right, that I think is unfair to those who disagree. So if someone is progressive and you disagree, what are you? You're regressive, right? Nobody wants to be regressive, right? Like uh, I said this before, but you don't hear a lot of people like sitting at the coffee shops, <laughs> sipping their like quadruple shot latte, saying like, "Like, man, I'm just like really like regressive on like so many issues." Like you don't like nobody's gonna like, brag about being regressive, but you'll brag about being progressive, right? So I think the word is a little bit loaded, in my opinion. Um, but if you are part of a of a of a quote progressive church which I think I am, I, 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 think, I think you would call the church that I attend progressive, you might take, take issue with this question, who lives in this home, right? So if we're asking the question, who's a Christian, who lives in this home, who can we call, call a Christian, um, in a progressive church, you, you, know, you, you may not really like to even ask that question because we don't like to judge, right? So um, I think that can be for a lot of reasons. I think one reason is because maybe we or our parents, and I think this is for people that I know, and especially in the faith family that I'm a part of, I think this is big for us. Either we or our parents came from very judgmental, authoritarian tradition in which anybody who disagreed with us was lost. So like, if you disagreed, ah, you're going to hell. You know, you know that's like, like, that was kind of a thing, right? So if you didn't hold the right view on communion or instruments or baptism, you were destined for hell. So a while back, I had a, a conversation with an old friend and her son, he is a recovering heroin addict and he's coming out of rehab. Um, he starts attending a denomination other than the one in which uh, he grew up. And the mom said, she's telling me, and she's just completely distraught. She said that the dad has just been devastated. And, uh, and I'm thinking, like, this is maybe the first time in his life he's been excited about knowing Jesus. And, like, she, you know, we're more concerned about the name on the outside of the building than, than the fact that he's, like, not using heroin anymore and that he's excited about knowing Jesus. You know, this was, like, the main thing. She was like, yeah. He's, you know, he, you know it, was, it was like this dev devastating thing. 
So that may be the way that some of us grew up um, with parents that thought like this. Um, and if you grew up like this, I think at some point you may have started to realize that this home of Christians may be larger than what you were told. And maybe you've realized that a lot of the people that maybe you grew up thinking were lost, maybe they're not, right? Maybe, maybe they're just Christians. So to be clear, and I think this is, I think anytime you like make a statement like, like I just made, I think that you have to always bring things back. And to be clear, I, I'm not saying that secondary doctrinal issues don't matter. So I don't hear me saying, like, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You know, they, these secondary doctrinal issues clearly impact how we operate as a church, how we live as Christians. Um, the point is this. Some of us have been, I think, negatively impacted, either through our parents' generation or, by our, or ours, by this idea that our church has it all right and any church that disagrees is lost. So, so that's, that's the point. And so... I think for many of us, what we do in response to that is when we experience something ne negative, we embrace what? We embrace its opposite, right? And so that's why for many of us, I think the question of who can be called a Christian, it kind of makes us uncomfortable. Um, I don't think we want to find ourselves you know, back in that judgmental, authoritarian place that either we or maybe not us, but our parents grew up in. Um, and truthfully, it may be none of that. Maybe it's just the fact that we live in a time when making any kind of claim on objective truth is completely vilified, right? Like you make a, a truth claim in 2017, and you, if you say it with any conviction in terms of it, there being no other option, like this is objective truth, that's vilified. In our, in our culture. So it just may be as simple as that. You know, for many of us, we may just be buying into this claim that truth can't re really be known. Um, you know, kind of a millennial catchphrase is, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Has anybody heard that before? Y'all heard that? Um, I've heard that so many times. And, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. I'm an old millennial. I'm, I'm barely still a millennial, but, I'm, uh, but I am one. But the point that Lewis makes is this. He says, or his point is that there are, in fact, basic primary doctrinal beliefs that we can all agree on as Christians. So if you claim to be a Christian, there are a few non-negotiables. Like there are a few things that like, that if you don't agree on this, you're not a Christian, right? There, we can make some truth claims. These are the things that, that he would say make up mere Christianity. So this is just Christianity at its most basic. Um, what what? Two blanks. Two so blanks. Lost and then mere. Okay. Anyone who disagrees is lost, and these are the things that make up mere Christianity. So, uh, and I wish I had this. I'm just gonna have to paint this picture in your mind. I don't have a, I don't have a whiteboard. I bet Kyle has one on here somewhere. Oh, it's on the sheet. Kyle, you're so good. Yeah. It's like I drew like a little spectrum. That's so great. That's perfect. It's not on this sheet. Oh, it's okay. Whatever. Um, so the the irony is that. We're, so we're on this linear scale, okay, I think, to a large degree. And this is how humanity is in everything. I, th I, think, I think any decision that you make in life, you've got to be asking yourself the question, am I responding to some negative stimuli by embracing its opposite? Because this is how we operate with so many things. And I, I, like, I'm constantly evaluating this. Like, am I believing this just because I hate the opposite? Is it, like, you have to really look deep into your soul um, to, 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 to see this because sometimes you're, you're caught unaware. But the irony is that when we're on this 
this linear scale, you've got ultra progressive on one side, right? I mentioned that word earlier, ultra progressive on one side, and then you've got strict authoritarian on the other side. Either way, like if you're on the far ends of those, that spectrum, the gospel's never heard. Like I, I don't think the gospel is heard in either of those extremes. Um, Lewis, uh, he makes the point that public arguments amongst Christians over secondary doctrinal beliefs actually serve to push non-believers further from belief. Let me make sure I'm, I'm going the right way here. Yeah, that's right. He, he makes the point that any public arguments amongst Christians serve that they serve to those arguments serve to push non-believers further from belief. In other words, this disproportionate focus on secondary doctrinal beliefs means that no one can hear the primary beliefs because all they hear is what just the chatter about all these secondary things. And on the flip side, um, if if you're not arguing, I'm not going to be in the argument. You're just a nice person. You serve the community, everybody loves you, but you never explain or defend the primary beliefs. The gospel is just as powerless. Isn't that interesting? It, people need to know why you're kind. Like the why, why is he so kind? That's because I love Jesus, but I'm not gonna tell you that, right? You know, people need to know the name of Jesus. They need to know why you're kind. They need to know why you want to serve them. You have to, you, you have to tell them with words. So you can be on the two ends of the spectrum and the gospel's never heard. The goal, I think should be not to be in the middle. I'm going to balance strict authoritarianism and ultra progressivism. Like I'm just going to be a great balance. I think the goal should be to destroy the linear scale altogether. So I'm not going to try to balance anything. And instead, I'm going to focus primarily on primary doctrinal beliefs, secondarily on secondary doctrinal beliefs, and tertiarily is that a word? Is that a word? On tertiary. Like I'm going to I'm going to make the important things. Like they're going to be. So I'm going to be so vocal about the important things that like no one's ever going to mistake like what I'm about. Like they're never going to misunderstand what I'm about and who I'm about. And the secondary and tertiary things, they'll come up and you can discuss them. A lot of those things probably need to be discussed in private. They probably don't need to be on your, your Facebook page or whatever. Um, I don't know how Satan works. I mean, I think I do uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I think I understand more how he works the more he's successful in his attacks on me. And I look back and I'm like, okay, that's what was going on. Um, but if I were Satan, I would try to get God's church to talk as little as possible about the things that matter most. That's what I'd do. I'd get, I'd get him talking about the, the things that matter least and have him talking you know, less about the things that matter most. Um, like like Christ's atoning blood, the resurrection, Christian morality, what is good, what is evil, where do good and evil come from, the deity of Christ, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That one's huge, right? How, did, how, did, how have God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit interacted for eternity past? Um, this is maybe the, I don't know, they're all big. The indwelling work of the Spirit in our lives. Like how does God come into you and change the way that you live? You know, I, I, would, I would try to get Christians to not talk about any of those things and instead talk about the secondary things and the tertiary things. So th those are the things that have the power to liberate people, to like set people free. So like you're in bondage with pornography or uh, heroin addiction or maybe you just gossip all the time. Maybe you're insecure. Maybe you're prideful and you think – I always thought it was funny when I was in dental school and people like – Thought they were so cool that they were dented, they're gonna be dented. I mean, we're all in the same boat. Like, like it, you know, there's nothing really to like, 
you don't have to puff yourself up, you know. But whatever it is, pride, vanity, sex, the, what has the power to liberate people are these, these primary doctrinal beliefs that make up mere Christianity. Um, those are the things that I think are most crucial for non-believers to hear. Like That's what people who don't believe need to hear. Christ's atoning blood, the power of the Spirit to liberate you from whatever you're going through, whatever bondage you're in. And Lewis says that the basic components of mere Christianity should be the things that unite us, that bring us together. Uh, where am I on a primary? Yeah, just primary. So the doctrinal, doctrin, uh, no one can hear the primary beliefs because we're talking so much about the secondary and tertiary thing, beliefs. Um, so I, I, Kyle and I talked a lot, a lot about this, talking about the why behind the what. So I think this is important in business. This is definitely important in the medical field. Like we get so bogged down with what we're doing, sometimes we forget why we're doing it. This is the why behind the what. Mere Christianity is the why behind the what. That's why I love uh, Lewis because he's a philosopher. You know, he go, he delves into not just the. It's not just like, hey, these are the facts. Like this is the why behind the what. This is this is this is why or the why is so that Christianity in its purest form, can be explained and defended to our unbelieving neighbors. And that, that we can all be united in that singular cause. Like we can come together and say, we're going to take this gospel out. This is our purpose. Um, not simply being nice people that serve our community, that where people in the community are like, man, those Christians sure are nice. You know, who's Christ? You know? But also not getting disproportionately bogged down in things that aren't primary. So not being on this ultra, you know, kind of like let's let's just be nice to everybody, but also not being bogged down with like let's hammer everybody with all these let's let's take our Bible out and start whacking people over the head with it. Instead sharing just these basic truths of Christianity with people that we know don't believe. Um, are you guys gonna is this a six week study? Five weeks. So, you know, y'all are going to spend the next four weeks discussing just those basic truths. But today, um, we're just going to cover book one in Mere Christianity, and it's entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, uh, which is a great title. You could, like, just think about that title um, for a while. Um, all right. So, Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, everyone knows who that is, Correct. I have, a, I have a friend who's, who's Muslim who, who claims that Sir Isaac Newton is not the first person to, to, to uh, discover gravity. Did y'all know that? It was, it was some like, Muslim scientist. Did y'all know this? Y'all didn't know this? Yeah, so we just, you know, our, I guess our Western-centric idea is that it was Sir Isaac Newton. But we know who, we know who Sir Isaac Newton is. Um, he, was, he was sipping tea one summer afternoon beneath an apple tree when all of a sudden an apple broke loose from the tree and it clobbered poor Isaac <laughs> on the head, right? Knocked him on the head. Poor, poor Isaac Newton. Um, so the story may or may not be true. I tried to look it up. I think a lot of people think it probably wasn't true. Um, but maybe it is. Um, but what is true is that, that at some point Isaac Newton realized that all objects on earth share this common behavior. So maybe at some point he was sipping his tea and he noticed that um, if his tea you know, escaped the rim of its cup, it, it would be drawn down toward earth and it would spill in his lap and it would burn him. 
And he was like, man, what is causing this burning sensation on my lap? Oh, it's my tea. How did my tea end up in my lap? Oh, it fell toward earth. You know, and he started thinking in his mind. Or, or maybe he noticed every time he'd been over too far, his, his wig would fall off on the ground. I think a lot of British people wore wigs at the time. I think they still do in the House of Commons. Is that right? Yeah. So but at some point, what Newton observed and what we all observe is that every time, that, every time you let go of something, it falls toward Earth. Every time. Um, Maybe you're thinking about balloons with helium. You know, don't if you're one of those cynical people that, that always thinks of an you know an, an alternative. Don't think that way. You know, helium's lighter than air, so it goes up. But the the point is that that Newton he discovered what was what was known as the law of gravity, and we call it a law because we've never discovered anything that acts differently. We've never uh, discovered anything that violates the law of gravity. So we say that 100% of the time we can observe objects being pulled toward one another depending on their mass and how far apart they are. And we have lots of laws like, like this uh, on Earth with physics and math. Um, we say that you know, these objects or these numbers behave this certain way every single time and we, we call their behavior law. That's something we all agree on. Um, Lewis says that like these laws of physics and math, there's another law, and he calls it the law of nature. So he says, this law, and where am I on my fill in the blanks? The law, yeah. And we call the law, we call it a law because uh, we've never discovered anything that acts differently. And then the law of nature is, uh, is the next point. So he says... This law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd individual here and there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have, a, have no ear for a tune. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe that they were right. If they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. Speaking of World War II. What was the sense in saying the enemy were, were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew, knew as well as we did and, and ought to have practiced? If they had had no notion of what we mean by right, then, though we may still have had to fight them, we could no, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. And, and the difference between the laws of physics and the law of nature is that you can't know the law of nature by observing people, right? So we, we, can't, we can know the law of, grab, of gravity by observing the way that objects fall to the earth. You know, over and over again, a rock falls. Uh, when, I, when I release a rock, it falls to the ground um, every single time, almost as if it has no choice, right? Like you let go of that rock, and it's, it's almost as if this inanimate object like it cannot behave differently than, than, than the way that it behaves every single time. Like it has no choice, all right? But people are different. We do have a choice. Um, Lewis says that the law of nature cannot be known by observing people in the same way we observe rocks falling. Instead, the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. So this is his point. You can't observe Nazis and say, well, I guess there's no, there's no real law governing human behavior. You know, human, humans aren't like 
rocks. We're not. We have the freedom of human choice. And the truth is that the Nazis chose evil. Objectively, we know that without a doubt that what the Nazis did was wrong. Like Nobody disagrees with that. And it doesn't mean that there's not a natural law. Instead, it just means that the Nazis broke the natural law. So here's the rub. And this is the, this is the problem, right? There's this natural law, and we all break it. We all break the law. So I have a confession to make. I've, I've done a, a lot of things in my life that I look back at, and, and I'm, not, I'm not proud, right? Um, things that were selfish. Um, I've stolen. I've cheated. I've lied. Um, I've done a lot of selfish things in my life. And almost everyone that you know would say, well, that's objectively wrong. It's objectively, it's objectively wrong to be selfish. It's objectively wrong to lie and steal. The question becomes, why? Why is it so wrong to be selfish? Why is it wrong to enslave? Why is it wrong to oppress? So um, are these ideas of, of um, right and wrong, you know, it being objectively wrong to, to enslave, is this idea just kind of floating around in space and we just kind of like grab hold of it? It's just out there in space and we grab hold of it? Or are they rooted in something else? Like, do we believe these things because they're rooted in something else. Um, some people would say, well, it's, inst it's instinctual. Like this, this comes, you know, the reason that we believe the things that we do about right and wrong, the reason that we believe that slavery is wrong or that racism is wrong um, or that murder is wrong is, is, is all based purely on instinct. Um, we feel this impulse to act in certain ways based on the coding of our DNA. It's just kind of in our DNA. The problem, Lewis says, is that we confuse the instincts themselves with the moral law that governs those instincts. That's kind of worry. So in other words, he, he, this is why uh, C.S. Lewis is so brilliant. He always makes a statement like that, and you're like, what is he talking about? And then he uses an analogy. He's the king of analogies. He says, the instincts are like the keys on a piano. So think about whatever instincts you have. He says, every key is right at one time and wrong at another. He says, think of a mother's instinct to love her son. Almost every time, this instinct is good and right. Um, but you all know the mom, right? The one that's at the baseball game, and like she's like cheering for her son. And she, she, why is she cheering for her son? She loves him, right? But what does she end up doing at the baseball game, the Little League baseball game? She takes it too far. She takes it too far. She cusses somebody out. It's the referee or the coach for not playing her son or the, the kid who beans him with the baseball, whatever it is. And so you see this love for her son that develops into hatred for the umpire or the other team. It's, it's, it's these keys on the piano. Most of the time, that, that, that key played in the right way makes a beautiful tune. But that same key, can, can, it can be pretty awful, right? And that's the instinct. The instinct is love but that instinct's not always right. Um, what about the instincts for sex and fighting? So most of the time, um, these instincts are wrong, right? Uh, what if every time you felt one of those instincts, you acted on it? Like the world, we wouldn't be here. We, would not, we wouldn't be here. If every time I wanted to fight somebody on, on I-40, I acted on it, I wouldn't be alive. You know, I'd be dead, right? Um, it, 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 I mean, I've wanted to act on it plenty of times. Um, 
but there are times when the, when those instincts for sex and for fighting are right. Uh, there are times there are times when a husband and wife should have sex, right? And there are times when helpless people need to be defended from people who would harm them. So there are times where you probably need to take your fist and ball it up and punch somebody in the face. You know, if I saw someone like beating a child, you know, and the only way I could stop them was to get get physical. You know, that's probably a time where like I need to step in and get physical, right? Um, I think we would all argue that it was it was good that that we fought World War II and we stopped, you know, Nazi Germany from taking over Europe. Um, our impulses or instincts are the keys on the piano. Every key is at one time right and another wrong, but there is a symphony that has been written for us. And I think it's a good way to think about morality and the way that we ought to live. That's the, that's the next blank. There is this symphony that's been written for us. We have this sheet music. Right? God has given us the sheet music. Paul says that it's been written on our hearts. That's what he says. And if, and if we play, um, and if we'll play the notes uh, the way that they've been written, what follows is beautiful, right? But if you don't play it, do y'all have like little nieces or nephews like that get on the piano and, and make this noise? Does anybody ever hear that? I do too. So. Yeah, yeah. Or do you do it? Do you sometimes bang on the piano? You know, it's a pretty awful sound, right? And that's kind of what happens. Like when we look at the sheet music and we're like, no. I'm actually going to, let me move that to the side. I'm just going to play it by ear and see what happens. But you don't even know how to play the piano, right? You don't know the notes, and you start banging, and it's chaotic. Um, Grab some of these blanks. I think maybe people figured them out. But So on this section, we have law, nature, and we have have no choice. So objects fall to earth because they don't have a choice and have no choice. And then the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do. As he says, but they don't. And then symphony. So, um, his, Lewis's whole point is that there's a difference between the notes on the piano and the way that a song is supposed to be played. So there's a difference between what I feel in my instincts and the way that I'm supposed to act, what I'm supposed to do. Um, so you can't just say it's all instinct. Um, there's a difference between our impulses and instincts and the way we're supposed to act. Um, listen to Lewis here. He says... The most dangerous thing you can do is to take any one impulse of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. This is, this is brilliant. There is not one of them that will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute God. You might think of, hum of love of humanity in general was safe, but it is not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become, in the end, a cruel and treacherous man. So I'll let that just speak for itself. But I think it hits really close to home of what we struggle with in our culture, is that we try to, we try to take one thing and we, we try to make it the thing rather than God. Like love is the thing. Well, what about justice, right? How do you bring those two together? Really, it only happens on the cross. Love and justice only coexist we should make a coexist sticker and have a cross, just the cross, because lo love and justice only coexist on the cross. Like Judge Judy, she has to choose between justice and love. She cannot choose both, right? Justice and mercy. Like she can't. Like if you send somebody to like death, like it, that's not very loving, right? But it happens on the cross that love and justice come together. Um, to continue on. 
some people consider the law of nature, so, so instinct, some people continue, consider the law of nature to be a social convention. So this is just something like we all agreed on as a group of people, something man-made. Um, this law that governs what is good, bad, right, and wrong was just something that people constructed. So coincidentally, um, when I did this lesson a, a few months ago, my daughter, uh, Evangeline, came downstairs and I asked her, I said, I said, why is it wrong to be selfish? Van, we call her Van. Um, and she said, well, because God told us when he made us. I was like, yes, that's so good. Um, and I said, well, what if I told you that you should be selfish and that, and that that was good? And she said, well, that would be weird because I'd have to disobey my parents. And, and in other words, Dad, I, I've got this law written on my heart, you know. I can't do what you tell me to do whenever I've got this thing inside me that, that tells me, like, it's wrong to be selfish. Like, they know that. Now, my daughter is selfish. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, she does a lot of things toward my son. I'm like, that is so selfish. And we talk a lot about that. But just because she breaks the law doesn't mean that the, that the law doesn't exist, right? Because she has human freedom. God gives us freedom. Um, Lewis makes the point that even if someone didn't know the law, that doesn't mean that the law doesn't exist. He, he compares natural law to the law of multiplication, and then he makes the, the point that we would never consider the law of multiplication to be man-made simply because this kid stranded, a child stranded on a, desert, uh, on a deserted island in the middle of nowhere doesn't know his times table. Like we would say, well, the law of multiplication still exists. This kid, he just doesn't know it, right? So complete knowledge of the moral law isn't required for it to be law. Does that make sense? That's kind of worry. Um, uh, secondly, because that's an argument. Well, they, people may not know the law, so how could, it, how, how could it exist? Complete knowledge of that law is not required for the law to exist. Um, secondly, everyone operates under this assumption that some morals are better than others. Everyone operates under this assumption. No one operates under any other assumption than this one. Um, even if they say they, even if they say that they don't. Um, there were people in 1865, right, who believed that it was morally acceptable for a human being to own another human being. And I don't know, personally, someone who would openly say that today. We would argue, I think all of us would argue, that our view of morality in that instance is superior to theirs, right? Believers, non-believers, we would all say no. Our, our morality is superior to theirs. Lewis says this, he says, the moment you say that, that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard, saying that, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. You are in fact comparing them with some real morality, admitting that there is such thing as a real right, independent of what people think. And that, and, that, and that some people's ideas get nearer to the real right than others. Let me read that last part. You are in fact comparing them with some real morality, admitting that there is such thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. So moving on, some people say, so you've got instinct, social convention. Some people say that morality is just what benefits us as, as individuals. Um, so I'm going to do, morality is basically what just, you know, benefits me. But what about when it doesn't? What about self-sacrifice and what about selflessness? Because oftentimes we, we talk about those things and we set them up as, as 
um, higher forms of, of morality. So, so obviously morality cannot be what just benefits us as individuals. Um, some say next that morality is what benefits society. Lewis says, if we ask this question, why should I be unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, why should I care what's good for society except for when it uh, pays, happens to pay me personally? And then you'll have, have to say, because you ought to be unselfish, which uh, simply brings us back to where we started. So um, we ask this question, why should I do good things and why should I not do bad things? And the answer is, is that if there is not some natural law governing our behavior, then I don't see how we have an obligation to do anything at all. So when I ask myself, why, why should I do bad and not do good? If there's not this um, real right, as Lewis re refers to it, if there's not some greater, higher authority that we're appealing to, then I don't think I have an obligation to do anything at all. Um, but I believe that there is a natural law that is seen in creation and that we know in our heart to be true. And I, I believe that we all break this law. We all, at some point, um, and most of us frequently, do things other than the things we know we're supposed to do. I find myself daily doing things that I wish I didn't do. I was talking to my daughter right before I came here um, about this girl influencing her at school. She got her car moved to yellow today, guys. It was really depressing. And um, there's a little girl who is, this girl is, is not, it's, it's not a good, she's, she comes from a really rough situation and, and, um, and she's influencing my daughter. And I was like, I was like, Angela, you have to decide who you want to be and, and the, the, the type of person that you want to be. And you have to make decisions that you know are right. And she's like, but it's so hard. And I'm like, and it is so hard. And it doesn't get any easier, right? This will be hard until the day that you die. Thank goodness we have the Holy Spirit to, to like guide us through this. Um, but daily, I feel like I'm doing things other than the things that I know that I'm supposed to do. I use that word supposed because there is this standard. And that's the problem. Lewis says this, he says this, he says, this is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. All right. So there's this tension here. Like, you know, it's like, if, 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 if we're not governed by this ultimate goodness, then what's the point? If we are governed by this ultimate goodness, man, we're all, we're in trouble, right? Because I know that I am not ultimately good. Like, I, you know, I, I think for a large part of my life, I thought that I was a good guy. But then I, then I think my eyes were opened and I was like, man, I'm, I'm actually pretty, pretty selfish in a lot of ways. I think if I'm battling this, you know, um, we're not likely to do any better tomorrow. So, Lewis makes the point that nothing else in Christianity makes sense if we don't first understand this tension. Like the, the gospel, Jesus' blood, the Holy Spirit, none of that makes sense unless you first understand this tension. And yet, I think we wonder why we have a hard time getting people to understand Jesus, right? We wonder why that's so difficult. I think maybe we put the cart before the horse. We are all lawbreakers, all of us. None of us has kept this natural law that we know is true. 
not a single person. And if we don't understand how things went wrong, how can we be expected to understand how things were made right? Like if you don't understand where your life went wrong, how can you understand how your life can ever be made right? How can we ever understand Jesus and the cross? How can we understand mere Christianity? So I want to thank Grant for coming and spending the night with us and teaching on this topic. Man, what a thought-provoking topic that is, this idea of, uh, you know, the idea that right and wrong can point to something about our universe or about our Creator and our God. There was a lot of really great discussion. I think I say that a lot, um, but the discussion was really, really excellent. I wish you could have been there to hear it. Um, just there's a, there's a lot in our lives that um, this topic applies to. There's a lot of us who have been raised to think about morality in wildly different ways, and the, those those ways of thinking have influenced. Uh, oftentimes a lot of the ways that, that our lives go, uh, or the trajectory of our lives, you could say. And so I think that was my favorite part, was both listening to someone who was raised in a very authoritative home, and maybe someone who was raised in a very progressive home, or maybe someone that was raised not even on that spectrum, you know, that linear scale that we talked about, um, and that's had to figure out how to think and to see right and wrong uh, themselves. And so, man, just hours and hours of conversation that we could have about this topic. Uh, these are truths that are universal and questions that are universal. They're also timeless. These are questions that we've been asking for thousands of years, and I think there's a very good reason why. And so, it's really grateful to discuss these things as a group and to think about these really important matters and these difficult questions together. We'll continue asking these questions next week. We're going to have David Flatt talk to us on... Book two of Mere Christianity, that's called What Christians Believe. And so if you want to know what Christians believe, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit next week. And then we'll carry on with two more weeks on the remaining books of Mere Christianity. Uh, as I always say, I really look forward to it. I really enjoy this. This is the highlight of my week. I hope it's a highlight of yours. And I hope to see you next week, Monday night, 7 p.m. at our home here in Germantown, Tennessee. Hope God blesses you this week, and I know he will. And we'll see you next time.